You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. Together, uh, Again, I want to thank you for all of your prayers, um, especially when you have been and have taken time to pray for our family. Uh, just to let you know, Annette's older sister passed a couple days ago. Holly went to be with Jesus, and we've had you pray for her and her family, and we appreciate that. We're going to have a memorial service. I think it's going to be Labor Day weekend, and so we'll be headed that direction. So continue, if you would, please continue to pray for, uh, pray for our family. We've had good news. We just had a gender reveal for my daughter last night. We have a, a new baby girl coming, so we're going to be uh, we're excited. Number 10. Count them, folks. Ten. We're in double digits now. We're, we've made it. So it's, it's so much fun. Let's do this. Let's open our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 7. If you're new with us, we want to welcome you. Thanks for being with us, whether you're online or here, uh, right here in the sanctuary, in the patio, wherever you might be on this campus. We're just thankful that we're together. We're in a series called Deep Dive. Uh, so if you want to open your Bibles again to Acts chapter 7, we're going to look at verses 1 through 60. Now, Acts 7 is one of the longest chapters in the New Testament. Now, the longest chapter in the New Testament is found in the Gospel of, does anybody have a clue where the longest chapter in the New Testament is found? In the New Testament, it's actually Luke chapter 1. It's 80 verses. Now, I want you to connect the dots. The longest chapter in Acts is these 60 verses that we're going to go over. The longest chapter in the book of, or the gospel of Luke is 80. Who wrote them? The same guy. Dr. Luke wrote them. He has a propensity for detail. And he wants you to know. He wants you to know everything that he knows. And so he's going to write them. He's going to tell you. And I'm so thankful that he has communicated the gospel of Jesus Christ, and especially when we come to the book of Acts, how Acts really communicates to us the wonderful, rich, fallible history of the early church. And so when we look at this, we get to pay attention to what God is, is up to. And we see that in, in this passage of Scripture. So we have our, our work cut out for us. We're going to cover 60 verses. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to only take little portions and go through the topics of those 60 verses. I think that'll be the best way uh, to go about it. Now, up to this point, if you remember, the heat is really on in the early church. They are experiencing major persecution. And we've seen that. You've already been introduced to that, uh, the persecution of Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. And then you see the death of Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5. And then there's the Hellenist Jews that were complaining about the way they were served. That's an internal conflict that, that the early church had to, had to confront and really had to have the wisdom and grace of God's Spirit to work through that very difficult moment. And then we come to Acts chapter 7, and at the end of this chapter, we find out that we experience and witness the martyr uh, of the first Christian. So Stephen loses his life because of his stance for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when we go there, we know that's the, the end, the exclamation. What we want to do then is back up and ask a few questions. How did Stephen go about this? And then the other thing that I'm going to ask today is how do we avoid being like the Sanhedrin? How do we avoid being like those uh, religious zealots that persecuted and ultimately martyred the apostle Stephen. And so we want to look at that because, listen, there are things in my heart, there are things in your heart that we need to pay attention to. And especially when the pressure is on. And we see that happening in Stephen's life. I don't know 
uh, where pressure is for you or what brings pressure about in your life when the heat really gets turned up. There are really, I have to say, there are two things for me, two things that really bring the pressure to my life. One is when Annette asks me a question because I'm pretty sure she already knows the answer, you know, and so that, that brings a lot of pressure to this man right here. Uh, but the second one, and the most difficult oftentimes, is speaking publicly. There's just a lot of pressure with that. I'm, I'm not the best public speaker. I doesn't come naturally, and so I, I really have to work at it. So when, I, when, I, when I'm going to say something to you, um, there's a pressure that comes. I never sleep. Do you guys know that I've lost sleep for 35 years every Saturday night? Every Saturday night, I do not sleep, thank you very much, you know. So Annette asked me this morning, did you sleep well? I said, no, it's Saturday. You know, I'm not going to sleep well on Saturday night. But what's amazing to me is that under pressure, most of us will crack. Uh, something comes to the surface that we don't like. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen did not crack. Uh, Stephen was excellent. The way that Stephen stood and gave an apology for the gospel of Jesus is remarkable. And it's something that we could pay attention to. It's something that we probably need to learn from in this particular chapter. Now, who is Stephen? Well, Stephen is a helper. The word deacon is really the, the Greek word for helper in the early church. Stephen communicates the gospel of Jesus Christ with excellence. Stephen loves Jesus. The Bible says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Stephen is one of two young men mentioned in Acts chapter 7. Stephen mentioned at the beginning, and then there's another young man mentioned at the end of this chapter. How many know who that might be? That is Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus is there, and he's witnessing the martyrdom of Stephen, the apostle Stephen. So he's there. And Stephen, again, is the first Christian that we witness being put to death. Now, the moment, this moment, uh, that we're studying this morning is when Stephen is asked to give a public address before a hostile crowd. So you can imagine the kind of, of pressure that he might have been experiencing, especially when you're looking in the eyes of the people that have, uh, that there's a high probability that they are going to not like what you say and take your life. There are these kinds of people that exist in the early church. Now, remember, in chapter 6, Stephen debates with the teachers and the experts in the law, and Stephen, he rocks it. I mean, he really does. He wins the debate. Now, what was the accusations against him? There were actually four official and legal accusations that were against Stephen. Now, the word blasphemy means profanity. It's probably a better word to use profanity than blasphemy because we don't really know what blasphemy is, but it was profanity in four different ways. They accused Stephen of profaning the name of God, the name of Moses, the law of Moses, and the temple. These are the four things that they were coming after Stephen over. And what does Stephen do? He steps up and he addresses these four issues. Now look at Acts chapter 7 and verse 1, and it starts with this question Stephen is asked, are these charges true? Are these charges true? Are these four things true uh, about what you're saying, what you believe? So Stephen stands up with his life on the line, and he gives the most brilliant defense. Stephen stands up, and he says something so radical that it literally splits Jerusalem apart, and it causes great persecution that scatters Christianity at that moment all around the, the world. It was one of the first what we call disporas of the church. Because of what happened to Stephen, others, others feared for their life. And many, many stayed, but, but many left 
Jerusalem and went to other places. So what did Stephen say? What did he say that got him in so much trouble? Now, I'm going to paraphrase. I'm going to take everything that those uh, legal hounds put down into four different accusations. I'm going to just give you one thing so you can remember it when you walk away from here. What made those people so mad is that Stephen said, God has left the building. God has left the building. And when they heard that, they were angered, even so much, and you'll read it a little later, that they were spitting mad. Uh, the Bible says that they were gnashing their teeth. And in a, a literal translation, let me say this to you, it is interpreted by many, many theologians that it wasn't just the grinding of their teeth, but they seized him and they bit him physically. They jumped on him and mauled him like dogs. And then what did they do? They went about stoning him and he lost his life. Now, this is radical. What, what Stephen says is radical. In fact, you'll see Stephen use the entire Old Testament uh, to show from the very beginning that God always had a plan not to stay in the building. That God wasn't going to be confined to anything in a box. God had a plan to get out of the box. It, it was their temple. And that's what Stephen addresses here. And to this day, that's still a religious flashpoint. When you talk uh, uh, to a Jew today and talk to them about the temple, about where God is, this still brings up some heated conversation. Now, Stephen came to them and he said, guess what? Guess what? We don't need to sacrifice animals anymore because Jesus is our once and for all sacrifice. Now, can you imagine if that is deeply embedded in your life as a religious person, that would cause you to be angry? But go a little deeper, and if it affected your pocketbook, it would probably cause you to be even more angry. And the people that he's talking to, it does affect their pocketbook because it was the Sanhedrin that gained from the monies that bought those sacrifices. And so they're listening to this, they're hearing this, and they're absolutely infuriated. The religious leaders go off. Stephen makes an argument, and it's an argument after argument about where God lives and that God never intended to stay in the box, never intended to stay and be confined to a little room. In fact, he says God is in far-off lands. And he uses, he uses Israel's own history to do that. Look at what it says in verses 2 and 3. It says, To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Notice how, notice how Luke is being very specific about where God was with Abraham. He's making it clear to those that were listening at that time that God was in a long, far-off land. God wasn't even close to the temple. He was somewhere distant. He was in Mesopotamia. He was in Haran. And, and it says this in verse 3, Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land that I will show you. Stephen says that the manifest presence or the glory of God has never been in just one place. Now, as we go about discovering and unfolding what's in this passage of Scripture, I want you to keep asking yourself, what applications do I need to make in my own life? Because I know for me, you look at something like this and you think about the Old Testament, you think about the law, you think about uh, Jewish customs, and you're thinking, well, what does that really have to do with me? Well, it has a lot to do with us. It has a lot to do with the way we perceive our relationship with Jesus Christ 
and the way we perceive who we are in the body of Christ. And so Stephen is bringing these radical statements about God being in a place that they weren't even aware of or, or didn't, didn't think that God would go to such a place like Mesopotamia because that's really a long way away. Then Stephen goes on to say that God was in Pharaoh's court with Joseph. So what's he doing? He's saying, let me tell you where else God was, that God is actually in the court of the most pagan king ever. Yes, the most pagan king ever. In verses 9 and 10, it says this, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God, listen to that, God was with him and rescued him from all of his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all of his palaces. Wow. Do you see that? That God was with him. It says God was with him. With, with who? With Joseph and Pharaoh in the court of pharaohs or in the court of kings. That's really what it's saying here. Not only is God in Pharaoh's court, but he's working in Pharaoh's court. He's not just present, but there's a work of God's Holy Spirit going on in that transaction between Joseph and Pharaoh. Why is that important to me? It's important to me because there are times that I look at those friends, those family members around me, and I think, man, they're in a far-off land spiritually. I mean, they're living in a pagan land, pagan lifestyle, whatever we want to call it. Can God really do anything there? The answer is yes. God goes to those places that, that we might disdain. He goes to those places that we might even be a, afraid of. Uh, saying, wow, it's so dark. How can God even go there? God goes into the darkest places we can ever imagine. He's not afraid of your darkness. You're not afraid of my darkness. He goes into those places. That's what makes him the God that he is to us, a God who loves us. Now, where God is in the next place, it says God is in the desert with Moses. He is with the most important Jewish leader in Jewish history, even to this day, and that, that's Moses. Listen to what it says in verses 30 to 32. It says, after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. Uh, as he, he went over to get cl a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac, Isaac and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did, dared not look. He dared not look at what was happening there. Where did God appear to Moses? In the flames of a burning bush, in the middle of a desert, most unlikely place. What is Stephen doing here? He's saying, listen, when God shows up in places that are most unlikely, we think that God needs to be in church all the time. We think God needs to be in the temple all the time. We need God to be where we want God to be, where we want him to be. And what Stephen is saying is God isn't always in the places that you want him to be. He's in other places as well. He's in places that you don't even and can't even imagine. Moses did not dare look because he was looking at the glory of God. This is what Stephen is saying. He's saying, by the way, boys, I want you to pay attention here. You are mad at me for saying God is not in the box. Guess who also saw God not in the box? It's your hero. It's our national hero. It's Moses. Moses saw God outside of the temple. 
He saw God in places that you could have never imagined. That's what Stephen is saying when he's saying this. That's what they heard Stephen saying. You need to hear this through that Jewish filter. They're hearing Stephen say, Moses saw God outside of what you could imagine. And then you look at verses 35 and 36. It says this. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words. Who made you ruler and judge? Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. Stephen is saying, you have a history of not listening and following God. I was reading this last week and wondering that about my own life. Lord, what is my history with you? What does my history look like with you individually? What does it look like collectively? Do I have a history of not listening to you? Do I have a history of turning my back on you? Do I have a history of telling you no when I should be telling you yes, like in the parking lot of Thriftway? Lord, what is my history with you? What is my first response? And listen, I'm not just speaking of, of a verbal response. I'm speaking of what is my first reaction, my first lean in emotionally to something God would ask from me. Now, my flesh is weak. My flesh is rebellious, disobedient. And oftentimes my first response is, nope, nope, I'm not going there. I'm not doing that. I'm not saying that. And then God keeps pressing and pressing. And now he proves that God is in another place right here. When we look the scripture a little further, God is in the battle with Joshua and David. Look at verses 45, or excuse me, 44 and 45. It says this. It says, Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern that he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David. They had forgotten. And that, that's true. I think we have short memories. That we don't always remember the history that we have with God and that God has with us. They had forgotten that God's address was not always in the temple. That there were other places that God lived. That he lived in a tent. And that he was in a, a battle. He was in a battle for the life, the very well-being of the nation of Israel. He was in a battle with them. Now here's the point. This is the point, and I think the conclusion of this is God is wherever he wants to be. Can you say that with me? God is wherever he wants to be. No one restrains God. No one tells God what to do. Look at verses 48 and 49. It says, however, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Rhetorical question, says the Lord. Or where will my resting place be? Now, if you're going to take a, a passage of scripture, a few verses, and say, now this is the central thought of this chapter, you just looked at it. When you look at verses 48 and 49, that is the central thought that Stephen is wanting to communicate to the Sanhedrin. He's wanting them to know that there's no house that they can build that can contain God. 
Now, can you imagine, again, if you've made your life over this house, around this house, about this house, <laughs> Stephen is saying, it's all going to come down. And what do we know? That history was fulfilled. The prophetic word did take place. In AD 70, the whole place was burnt to the ground. The whole place was in shambles. So when we look a little further in verses 40, uh, excuse me, 54 and 56, it says this. And when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, here it goes. They were furious and gnashing their teeth at him. Or as some translations say, on him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And here's how you react when you miss God. The next is how it looks when you rebel, when you determine you're not going to follow the leading of God's Holy Spirit. It was what you see right here in verses 57 and 58. At this, they covered their ears. They covered, I have grandchildren that do that, by the way. When they, when they, when they hear something they don't want to hear, they cover their ears and they go, blah, 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 blah. That's what they do. They covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. Dragged him out into the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witness laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, later to be the Apostle Paul. So how do you miss God? I think that was one of the questions that stood out the most to me because I certainly don't want to be someone who misses God. I want to be someone who follows God, who's obedient to God. And I think what this does for me, this passage of Scripture, it, it reflects something. It tells me something in ways that maybe I don't hear in other places. I always want to know how to do the best and how do I please God. But when you ask the question, how do I miss God or what are the ingredients of missing God? I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to stay there very long because it, it hurts my heart. I don't want to stay there very long, maybe because I'm convicted. I just don't want to stay there. I want that positive message. I want that message of blessing and hope and love. And that's all here, of course. But there's something here that you have to pay attention to. You know what my dad said to me uh, when I was a young guy, I was an athlete, and I was trying to make my way in the professional ranks, and he said to me this. He said, Ron, uh, there are two things that you can look at when you look at discipline. You need to remember what you want every day, and you need to remember what you don't want every day. You see, it's just as important not only to remember what you want, but it's important to remember what you don't want. When we see the response uh, of the Sanhedrin, it reminds me of things I don't want. I don't want my heart to be like this. This is a, a hard question, isn't it? It's easier to put yourself in Stephen's shoes. It is. To be able to say, even though he goes through a, a death, even though we, we know that his life ends in a horrible way, uh, I want to be the hero. I want to be the hero of my story. I want to be the hero. Uh, I just want to be the hero. And so I, I, I'm, I'm like Stephen. I'm going to be there until the very end. I'm going to give my life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and, and maybe that would be true. Maybe that would be true for, for a lot of us. But it's much harder to put yourself in the shoes of the Sanhedrin who, who did miss God, who totally missed what God was up to. To put yourself in a place where you say, God, has there been a moment or moments where I have missed you? 
You know, I can't tell you how many people that I've met in life that live a wonderful life. Um, they're wonderful people, truly gifted people, financially well off, happy marriages. Their kids love them. Their grandkids love them. And they get to the end of their life and they completely and totally missed God. Totally missed Him. Now I see that because I sit in a front row. I have a front row seat of lives that pass and me being asked to be involved in those moments of memorial and funeral and gravesides. And I'm always aware of what did they live their life for? What was their purpose? Was it just to get what they could out of this life? They, they've used the wonderful gifts that God gave them to, in a lot of ways, indulge in a life that has no eternal value or meaning. That's sobering, isn't it? What they were made to do, they have never really discovered. Never. If they were honest, they would have admitted that they were in past moments in their lives where they were prone to follow God and didn't take that moment, didn't take that opportunity that it, that it came, that it showed up, but it, but it, but it went away. The, the window closed. We know this. We know all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But that has to be the desire of your heart as well, that the Holy Spirit would convict you to the point that you would say that. And that my heart would be open to say, Lord, I, I just want to be open to whatever word you would bring to me, whatever direction you want to lead me in. So here it is, how, how to miss God. How about that? Let's, let's look at this just for a moment. How to miss God. I think there are four life applications, four lessons from Stephen's great message here. Number one, you want to know how to miss God? Put your title over truth. Indulge in the title you've given, the position you have, the authority that comes with that position or that title. That's exactly what the Sanhedrin did. That's what the Sadducees and Pharisees did. They held on to their authoritarian grip over the community, that they had religious sway, that they had the final word, that it was their position, it was their title that really mattered. Not the truth. Not the truth. We see that happening today. We see that happening around us. When we put our position over God's true purpose in our lives, then trouble will come. Put your heritage or your religion or your politics over God. These are, are a bunch of people saying, we are the chosen ones. <laughs> We're the ones in charge. We're the leaders. You don't tell us what to do, especially you, punk kid, because he was a young man. You don't get to tell us what to do. You see what's happening here? Uberus is taking over. There's an arrogance. There's a pride that takes over. They're saying, we will tell you where God is. You're not going to tell us where he is. In verse 51, the first part of it, Stephen says, you stiff-necked people. Yeah, that gets your attention, wouldn't it? Someone call you that? Said, you, you stiff-necked people. No one likes a person who leads with, do you know who I am? Have you ever been around that kind of situation? Listen, do you, do you know who I am? I'm the smartest person in the room right now. No one wants to follow or be led by someone like that. It's not about the title. Listen, it's not about the title. It's about the truth. And it's about the truth of God's word. That's what, that's what life is about for us right now. 
stiff neck. Your hearts and your ears are, he says, are still uncircumcised. They were listening to this. Stiff neck means stubborn or rebellious, wanting to go your own way. Uncircumcised was something that marks this chosen people, God's chosen people. It's a marking. It's a tattoo that says you are God. You have been set aside. The Institute of Circumcision started with Abraham, and it was a way to say you belong to God. Now, what Stephen is saying, you have all the marking, you have the tattoo, but that's the furthest thing from the truth in your heart. You're marked like a believer. You talk like a believer, but you don't act like one. That's what Stephen's saying to these people sitting in front of him. Are we marked? Are our hearts marked by the presence of God's Holy Spirit? Are we tattooed? You know where Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, he says, I'm a bond slave of Jesus Christ. You know what that literally means? It means I am tattooed by Jesus Christ, that I'm forever marked by him, that everywhere I go, people know who own me. They know who owns me. And that's Jesus Christ. Now, what does your heart look like when it's marked by Jesus? Well, one, I think it's good for us to ask good questions. I'm just thinking in practical terms, sitting down with people and talking with people, having conversations with people. I want to make sure that I'm asking some good questions about their life and who they are and what God might be up to in them, even before they're believers. I want to know what God has been up to in their life. How many know that God is up to things in people's life before they come to Jesus? I do. I mean, you're here. You're proof of it. You are. All of us are proof of that. He was working in your life. He was working. Do you know there are so many ways? Now, listen to me. There are so many ways, so many journeys, so many stories that talk to us and tell us about how we got to Jesus. But there's only one way to get to the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ alone. I love to listen to your stories. I love to hear what's happened in your life. I think another way to know that your heart is marked is you admit when you're wrong. You just say, yeah, I blew it. I'm wrong. And then I think another way is act slowly. When you listen, don't be impulsive. Don't be angry. Today, there's such anger. There's such vitriol in the community, in in our social media platforms. Everywhere you go, somebody's mad at somebody. And if you don't think that's true, go for a ride on I-5 for a half an hour, and you're going to see a lot of angry angry people. I don't know what is doing that. And you know what? I really had to pray to stay out of that mix. I really do. I get on the road now and say, Lord, don't let angry people upset me. Don't let them, their anger, affect me. Don't let them make me angry. Man, that's a challenge for me right now. But I don't want to be angry. I don't want to be impulsive. I want to listen to what God's up to and is leading. Here's another way that you can miss God is number two, attempt to control God's plan. Yeah, attempt to control God's plan. I think all of us maybe, I think, I'm thinking, at least most of us in this room say, yeah, I've been guilty of this. Can we just admit that we love to control things? We just love to control. We have more control over our personal world than ever before. You know how I know that? Because every time I sit down at home on my couch, I'm looking for one thing and one thing only. I want to know where the remote is. Because right now, no one else controls this but me. And my grandkids know I have one seat. I have my seat. And they're always messing with control in my life. 
because they'll jump in the seat, they'll hold the remote control, and they'll go, look what I have. They, they, know, they know I love that. You know, we, we do. We love control. We love, we love things that we can control. Here's what it says in verses 51b and 53 all the way through. It says, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. Listen to the words he uses here. Words you're not supposed to use in marriage and conversation. Listen. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Boy. You don't say, guys, gals, do not say that to each other. But Stephen says it to them. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever, that's another word you don't use. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. That's Jesus Christ. You have received the law that is given through angels, but have not obeyed the law. <laughs> you can bet this rankled them. How many know that resisting the Holy Spirit is exhausting? I mean, really, when you try to live your life and you just try to keep saying no to the Holy Spirit, you got to be totally exhausted at the end of the day. It's just hard to do. It wears you out emotionally, spiritually, physically. So what would happen? What would happen if every day you woke up and said, I am saying yes to you today, Lord. I'm surrendering you to you today. Why? <laughs> One of the reasons why is I don't have enough strength to resist you. You're the all-powerful. You're the almighty. You're the one that has strength. Listen, do you know what we can actually control in our lives? Almost nothing. I mean, really, when it comes right down to it, we don't really have the ability to control that much. We try to control so much in our lives, and, it, and, and again, it's so tiring. The secret to a happy life is to learn that you're not in control as much as you think you're in control. That's why I love being in the rooms of AA. It says, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. You know who, who wrote that? One of the greatest theologians ever, Ryan Holdenberg. That is an amazing statement. I have to say that almost every day. Lord, help me with this. Help me with this. Where is God asking me to surrender control? Where is he doing that right now in your life? Then the third thing is when you fail to see where God moved. When you fail to see God's history in your life. When you fail to see God's history in God's community, in the church. God did not stay in the place they wanted him to stay. Do you know that in the Bible there are a few places or a few homes that God occupied? There are only a few. God has always been wanting to get into one place always and you know where that place is it's in your heart are you not the temple of God's Holy Spirit but when you when you look at the scripture you recognize God is leading us up to that how does he do that Solomon's temple in in first Kings chapter 6 that's the first temple that was built in the dwelling place really a more permanent dwelling place for God a beautiful massive home and then there's another one described in Revelation. And that home is our heavenly home, our eternal home, that will be someday those that know and call on the name of Jesus will spend eternity in heaven in this beautiful place. This home is so amazing. None of us 
even want to be in a different home. We like that home. If we know anything about heaven and that we're going to be in the presence of God, God's pool is bigger and better than your pool. His stereo system's bigger and better than your stereo system. His lawn is bigger and better than your lawn. Everything he has is bigger and better than anything that we have. This is our eternal home. And he says, I want to spend eternity with you in this place. So we see this awe-inspiring description of, of heaven in Revelation. And yet God did not want to live in the temple that Solomon built, that David saw the vision of. He didn't want to, he didn't want to live, live there. He wanted to live with you. And so how does he start that happening? God becomes flesh. You know what it says? It says in Philippians chapter 2 that he took upon the form of a flesh, and here it is, and he dwelt among us. You know what that means? That he made a tabernacle among us. That God's presence, Jesus, is God. And that he came and lived among us. Jesus had moved in our lives in such a way and brings salvation to us in such a way. Jesus had more value to God than any wood, any precious stones, anything. Anything that you could imagine, Jesus was more valuable to God than anything. And so he takes residence in Jesus Christ. There's God's presence. God. God. The very presence of God, the, the, the picture of God is found in Jesus Christ. That he came and dwelt among us. And then it goes on to say, you are now. Those that call in the name of Jesus, you are now the temple. It's amazing to me. You know why it's amazing? I'm broken. I'm weak. I'm sinful. And yet, what does he say to all of us? He says, I want to live in you. I want to dwell in you. I want to be in you. I know you're broken. I know it's hard right now. I know things that you're going through are difficult. But I'm so thankful that it's a gracious, loving, forgiving, patient God wants to dwell in me remember that today as we move through the day remember what Stephen is saying I mean what he's saying here is you don't tell God where to live he determines where he's going to live and where he's chosen to live is in your heart and when you call upon the name of the Lord you will be saved this is this is too wonderful for us it's it's for so difficult for us to understand. Look at verses 55 and 56. It says, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked to heaven, and he saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Do you notice anything there that's different than the other descriptions of Jesus in heaven with God? I love this. It's the only place we see Jesus standing. The other places is he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. In this place, we see him standing. It's like he was sitting next to God, and he saw this happening, and he said, oh, there's my son. There's my son. I need, I need to see this. I don't know. Was he getting a closer look? Was it a thing of honor? Yes, I think all of those things. But he stood. And when Stephen arrived in heaven, he saw a standing Jesus greeting him. Because Stephen was faithful to the end. When was the last time you believed, really believed that you were a temple of God's Holy Spirit? That he dwells in you. When you get close to God, you do one of two things. And you see it right here. You fall down and you surrender to him. Or you run away, you plug your ears. They chose to run away and plug their ears. We could make the choice to fall down. 
on our knees and worship him. What are the things that are plugging your hearing right now? What are the earphones, the plugs that are in your ear that needs to be taken out by God's Holy Spirit so you can hear what he has to say? I want you to look at the contrast between their ears and Stephen's ears. Listen to what it says. It says, at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him. And then he fell to his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. He did exactly what his Lord had done. He forgave those that, that killed him right there on that, at that point. He asked God to forgive them. That's a, that's a contrast, isn't it? Between him and the people that were going after his life. Listen, this covering their ears, him bending his knees. I want to be one that bends my knees, not covering my ears. Then he's yelling out, forgive them. They're yelling out, kill him. They're rushing at him. He is still and he's at peace. When you know the presence of God is in your life, that you're a temple of God's Holy Spirit, there's a peace in our life. That when God's presence is in your life, in your home, around you, there's a peace. Invite his presence. Invite his peace. The other day, our, a few of our grandkids were spending the day with us, and we put the youngest one down to uh, take a nap, and uh, he didn't like it so much. And uh, I don't like it either because uh, I hear him screaming. I don't know. I, Annette can do that better than I can, but I walked in the house, and I walked out, and I looked at her, and I says, nope, not doing this. And uh, she said, okay, go get him. And uh, so I walked up, and right when I opened the door, it was dark. Right when I opened the door, he heard my voice, and he went, <laughs> and you could just tell everything went, Ooh. and the whole room calmed down. In the darkest place <laughs> of his day, he knew the presence of his grandfather was there, and he rested. You have a father, and his presence brings rest and peace. Enjoy his presence. Would you bow your head with me? Today, for those that may not know Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to receive him as your Lord and Savior. That you have a moment now where you can run some more or you can bend your knee and you can call upon him. The Bible says all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so today, hear that call. Open your ears. Hear what God has to say to you. He loves you and he cares for you. If you're hearing this online, the Bible just says to us, if we call upon the name of the Lord, if we believe in our hearts, confess with our mouths, we will be saved. And what we're doing right now is we're putting online, you can get it online, the, the directions for following Jesus. It's just a little, just a brief clip of scripture that help you know about the decision you're making. But if you're here today and, and you want to invite Jesus in your heart, you haven't done that yet, just lift your hand where you are. Where our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, but I just want to invite you to know Jesus. If you want to know Jesus today, you can know him. You can know him. Thank you. Just keep your hand up just for a moment. Um, we want to get a package to you. It's a, it's a starter kit. So there we go. Thank you. Thank you for your courage, for your faith. And we're going to do this. For those that lifted their hands, we're going to do this together in community. We're all going to pray this same prayer. And I'm going to ask everyone in this room to follow to follow this prayer with me. Dear Jesus, 
I ask you to come into my heart today. Today I confess with my mouth and I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and has forgiven me of my sin. Forgive me of my sins today, Jesus. And make my heart your home. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you applaud the salvation of the Lord? Would you do that? So good. So why don't you go ahead and stand with me. And for those that came to faith in Jesus today, would you remember this? You don't need to do this alone. That the presence of Jesus is with you. That this community is with you. What I'm going to encourage you to do is make sure you tell someone. Uh, tell the person you came with. You can go to the prayer teams. Tell them and let them pray with you. Take the package that you just were given and go through that. Read that. We want to we help you get to where God wants you to be. And this is the step you take. Coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Let's applaud salvation again. Would you do that? Amen. Amen. Father, go with us. Bless us today. Thank you. Thank you for your presence in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbefoursquare.com.